You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 85 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm very well, thank you, Valerie, on this fine and not very sunny day. But not yes, no, sunny. I'm good. I'm very good. What you? have you been up to? Oh, yes, I'm supposed to tell you that, aren't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we just chat about the weather. No, I... Um, Oh, actually, you know what? I'm a little bit excited because mm-hmm. I've just received news that the first book in the Mapmaker Chronicles is going to reprint again. Oh, my goodness. A very big day in an author's life. It's mm. very exciting. means that, um, you know, they can't keep it on the shelves, people. So that's excellent news that's for me. brilliant. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I know. Very exciting. That's um, And that's very exciting because it's coming up to Christmas and my big advice to everyone is buy the bundle. I think. Buy the bundle, yeah. yes. Books well, one, Booktopia two and three. has a discounted bundle and that's um, that's well worth having a look at, I think. So, yeah, anyway, I will put a link in the show notes in case anyone is interested. Fantastic. What about you, Valerie? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? Well, this week I actually <laughs> – people will know that I've gone through the saga of uh, reading, reading 279 short stories, 810,000 words. <laughs> epic saga. Shall we say that? Can we epic say that? Because I feel saga. like we've been doing it with you yes. and it's been taking quite some time. Yes. It and has been taking what- quite some time. But it culminated this week. <laughs> We have a climax, people. Yes, Woo-hoo. that's right. And the awards were the the awards were done. The ceremony was done, and um, it was great. It was just a great event in Lane Cove, and uh, the winner of the short story. I can say who it is now. Oh, the good, winner of the short story section came all the way over from Western Australia. Oh. So yeah, she was flown over from Western Australia, and her name is Alicia Bakewell, and Fantastic. I have. You know, I'd never met Alicia before or anything like that. You know, I judged her on her short story and I finally got to meet her at the event. And as it turns out, she listens to our podcast. <laughs> Hi, Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Congratulations. <laughs> but yeah, well-deserved winner, definitely um, the the best in the field. And uh, congratulations to Alicia. She wins $2,000. Wow. That's and- so it's it's a it's a good awards and also there's a poetry winner and a um, theatre so a playwright winner as well. But uh, and was it a good party? Let's get to the. It was really fun. <laughs> you know, there was yes adequate uh, stuff to imbibe. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving, so I didn't imbibe very much. And were you rubbing shoulders with the glitterati? Well, you know, with um, some fabulous people, including mm. the long list and the short list winners, but of, of course the judges and it was, um, you know, uh, some counsellors and people like that as well. And um, the, my fellow judges were great, Kate Middleton and Tim McGarry. Um, and uh, it was just so good actually to meet Alicia because, you know, when I read it, I think this is actually an interesting point, I actually did wonder, you know, oh, She's so good. She's probably won all these other short stories. And I wonder whether she's just an experienced writer. She started writing six months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. That is I a great story. In shock. And um, she, she, she enjoys reading though, you know. Mm-hmm. She started writing six months ago. She actually has a cleaning business. So she's a sole trader. She's a cleaner. But uh, in all the time that she has cleaning, she has lots of time to make up stories and let them brew in her head mm-hmm. so that they're, when they're ready to come out, she, she just pours them out. She's entered four short story competitions in the last six months and she's won two. Oh. <gasps> That's amazing. Amazing. 
That's yeah. fantastic. Well, I hope she's listening to our podcast while she's cleaning. I lo- she doesn't even have to procrastinate clean. Like she's actually <laughs> productive right. cleaning, which is yes. fantastic. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope she's brewing up lots of new short stories for more competition. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to read the novel, you know. It's just, it's, uh, yeah. Well, there you go. You've got your first audience and your first buyer right there. Exactly. Anyway. All right, so let's move on because I yes. wanted to bring your attention, yes, Valerie, to please. a post that I came across during the week. Um, now, one of the things that we get asked regularly, and we have discussed this on the podcast on several occasions, mm. is how do you set a price for your freelance writing work? Oh, yes. Um, and, of course, you and I have both always discussed the fact that you uh, need to put a price on the work that you are happy to do it for. Yes. Well... On the freelancecat.com, which mm-hmm. is a website for freelance writers and bloggers, mm-hmm. there's a little post um, called The Simple Way to Price Your Freelance Writing Work. And I thought, wow, that sounds like us. <laughs> and they talk about the happy price. Oh, I love that. Which, of course, is what we've always discussed. But the the fact um, is that they go through a little fun, effective, quick technique, which is basically that you start with a price that is too low. Yeah. And this is what is called your sad price. Um, <laughs> now, this is based on a, an article that was written for Forbes magazine by um, a guy called Michael Ellsberg. And this is basically a summary of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Michael Ellsberg suggests you start with your sad price and then you move up from your sad price in increments of $25, $100, $500, whatever is appropriate for the price. Mm-hmm. So, if you're for instance, talking about a big copywriting job mm. that's going to take you a long time to do. You might go up in $500 increments, but if you're talking about a blog post, you're probably going to go up in $25 increments. Yeah. And then as you scale up, you have to wait for that little moment, that point at which you think, yes, I would be happy to do the job for that price. And that is your happy price. And that, that is what you put good. on the job. Yeah, yeah, I think it's cute because it's better than like, oh, well, you know, last time I did this, it was that or whatever. It's just like, how do I feel about doing it for $25? Yes. I feel sad. How do I feel about doing <laughs> it for $50? I feel relatively a little bit happier, but I'm still not happy. You know what I mean? Yes. So, so go through it in increments and then wait for that moment where you think, yeah, you know what? I could do it for that. That is a really good technique. I love it. And yeah. just a point of trivia, Michael Ellsberg, I actually met him once. So there he's American. Go. I met him um, in the Napa Valley at a conference. And the, he actually, one of his earlier books is called, um, he's written several books. Um, one uh, which I've read is The Education of Millionaires. Um, and one of his earlier books is called The Power of Eye Contact. Oh, and strangely, when I met him and, you know, we shook hands, he's quite freaky. His eye contact is full on. Oh, intense. Eye yes, contact. intense, quite intense. All right. That's a great link. Thank you. Um, I wanted to share a link from Jane Friedman's blog, which I know you like. I'm a big fan. Yes. And this one is called Conquering the Myths of the Writing Life. And she poses the question, is there such a thing as a happy writer, a creative person who doesn't have a secret torment? Because, you know, we hear a lot about writers who they do their best writing when they drink a lot of scotch and or gin or something like that, or they're most creative after a big heartbreak and then they can write that song or, or write that novel or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, that they can really churn out that novel uh, as they're coming out of the depths of their depression or, or that sort of thing. And I thought that that was an interesting question to pose because I don't know what you think, but I think that's a lot of bollocks. <laughs> so do I. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. Mm. Um, I mean, depression being a muse, I, I actually think that if most people who have ever experienced depression would probably tell you that generally speaking, when you're in a depressed state, you don't do anything it's debilitating you find it incredibly debilitating and difficult to even you know get out of bed so as a muse like seriously the muse needs to get like probably needs to be sacked Mm. and a new muse inserted into that position because um yeah I look I I look I think there's a lot of it out there and I think it's but I, I think it's a very young 
person's myth too. I think it's the kind of thing when you're 18, you're probably, <laughs> you know, when you're wafting about wearing black and, you know, listening to emo world, music, listening to emo music and being all idealistic. I think you're probably thinking, yes, I must, you know, sit in a garret and starve or therefore I, or else I am not a writer mm. um, with a capital W or as important. Mm. Um, but I actually think that, you know, most of the people I know that who are actually having writing careers are very self-disciplined people who sit down and write, get on with it, um, and who look at ways to manage their – I mean, I think there's a certain element of anxiety that comes with any type of writing, but simply for the fact that – you know, it's a very personal thing and, and it's it takes a lot of courage. And this is something I talk about when I go to even to my school writing workshops. I, I have a little uh, presentation that I do which is called Find Your Writing Superpower and it's for kids. Mm. And I talk about the fact that everybody's got one. Like, you know, it, it you may not necessarily recognise it as a writing superpower because people have this idea that that to be a writer it's kind of wafty and esoteric and, you know, you're walking around waiting for an idea to hit you on the head. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I honestly believe that one of the one superpower that all writers have, all published authors have, all writers of any kind, is courage. Because it takes a lot of yes, courage to put yourself out there. Like, you know, writing is so personal and, you know, you're essentially distilling your thoughts in some way, shape or form into a form that everybody can read and criticise. Um, and, I, and, I, and so that that's what I think. I think that you, one, when you grow up a little bit and learn that it's it's not kind of alcohol that gets you to be a real writer but actually courage, mm. I think that that's probably an important thing to work oh. out. It's another interesting thing that's related to this that I've been noticing with a lot of best-selling authors, um, like New York Times best-selling authors who happen to also be entrepreneurs, because there's a lot of you know entrepreneurs who write books, mm. is that a common thread, a common theme that I see is they all have had a tragedy. So Brendan Bouchard had a terrible car accident that he almost died from and almost and it transformed his life. Lewis Howes, who's you know, in the top 10 New York Times bestseller list at the moment, um, had a terrible accident when he was a pro athlete and then he couldn't you know, be, be a pro athlete anymore. And the list goes on. And I just want to tell people – you don't need a terrible tragedy in your life to be successful or or to to tell a good story and i think that sometimes people search for that tragedy so that they can give bring their story to life mm. or give a turning point to people in their life and you know what you can be just as successful without having a tragedy so mm. yeah. Just don't go searching for it. Don't go searching for it. No. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to another link from the book designer. I really liked this link. It's called Getting Ready for an Edit, How to Help Your Editor and Save Money. Now, this is not about a structural edit. It's more about a copy edit. So you're already ready to, you know, give it the, the fine-tuning treatment. And I think that's really important because I've been editing a bunch of stuff lately and I've been tearing my hair out oh, <laughs> at, okay. the, at the way it's it's been presented to me. So much um, time and effort can be spared if it was just presented in a better way or a way that made sense. So I, and on this, I'd like to, because talk about Google Docs because so many people are writing things in the cloud these days mm-hmm. as opposed to Word, which is fine. Uh, but if you actually want to see your editor's edits, then something like track changes in Word is actually invaluable and the commenting system in Word is invaluable. Yes, I know there is commenting system in Google Docs. Yes, I know that you can, in theory, track who did the last edit, but you will never learn unless you can actually visually see the edit. Mm. And so I would very much suggest that you ask your editor how they would like it given to them so so that they can present the edits back to you in the best way. Often it's not going to be in Google Docs unless they are an inexperienced editor. <laughs> mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, so they might say Word, they might say a PDF, which they'll annotate, they might say whatever. But absolutely ask your editor what's the ideal format in which they can you, you can give it to them. And even in just little things like never typing in all caps for a heading you know, mm. because then you can't change it to sentence case. Mm. Uh, always just write in sentence case and it, it, it can then be changed to, you know, all caps at the design stage. 
So, yeah, when you edit stuff, what are your frustrations, I suppose? Okay, world's biggest frustration when I'm editing anything, and, and this is even just if I'm marking assignments in my um, in my Australian Writers' Centre freelance course, mm-hmm. double spaces after full stop. Oh, yes. I know that that is the smallest possible thing in the world, <laughs> but it is infuriating, infuriating as an editor because you just, like, it's so annoying. Yes. Um, a single space, a double space after in punctuation, like we finished with that when people – when we stopped using manual typewriters. Yes. You know, it's, <laughs> it's so time. 1974. I know it's really time to move on. So that's yeah. that's one thing. Um apart from that, I just I don't know, like it's I guess it's those small things that that I frustrate me in the first paragraph and then continue to frustrate me throughout the entire <laughs> document. I think it's it's little things like that. And I also think that it doesn't hurt to run a spell check before you actually oh, send the yeah. document off. But, you know, I have to say this too. This is a really interesting thing. So um, now that I have three published novels out there, I know exactly how many people are involved in an actual publisher's editing process. And it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of reading. So it, I will go through a document, you know, I will do like two drafts, possibly even three before I even send it to my to my editor, mm. who then goes through it for a structural edit, which I then go through again and when then I send it back and it goes to a copy edit and then it comes back and I go through it again. Then it goes to a proofread and it's proofread by, in my case, um, the managing editor. It's also proofread by a proofreader. It's proofread by my mum because she likes to read that. <laughs> she, seriously, that's her preferred time to read the book is okay. at the proofread stage because she marks it up for me as it, she goes through it okay. and then I go through it after her and have a look at what she's marked up and then I make my own changes okay so it's been proofread by four different people it's had all those edits and I can tell you that there are still typos in those novels yeah. and they are picked up by 10 year olds yeah. who like to email me and tell me about them oh so God. it's it's a it's a human error thing and it's a strange thing so spell check's not going to pick it up because it's things like she to he you know, yeah. the he where it should be a she and things like that. But having said that, doesn't hurt you to run a spell check before it goes to your editor because, you know, why waste time with small spelling problems yes. that, you know, you can fix yourself? Like In seconds. Anything that you can fix yourself mm. simply doesn't need to go to your editor. Yes. And spell check won't pick up uh, something that happened to me quite recently. I'm actually featured in a book uh, that, you know, is through through a that's you know, um, a major title that is uh, published by a big publishing house that has gone through the editing process exactly as you described with the exception of your mum. <laughs> You know, she's, and I have to say, my mum is an eagle eye. So, you know, it's like, I just can't understand it at all. Well, maybe she should have done this one because it talks about Valerie Koo, blah, 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 and it, it, get, it gets my name right at the first reference. Thereafter, I am referred to as Darren. Darren? <laughs> yes. No. Yes. What, throughout the entire. Yes. <laughs> How did this happen? I don't know. What? What do you even say to her? My mum would have noticed that. Yes. I have got to tell you. She totally – she would be like, who's Darren? I know. It would be written in brackets next to <laughs> That's how she does. She like writes, what do you mean by this, Alison? I think you should use learnt. I'm just like, oh, it's like school. It's worse. It's worse than school. It's That's hilarious. hilarious. I, I think we should hereby refer to you as Darren for the okay. rest, of, rest of the podcast. <laughs> It goes over pages. I was Dar- oh, that's, I'm Darren. That is, that, is the be- that is actually the best one I've heard of in a really long time. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty impressive. Okay, Darren, moving on. Okay. <laughs> Let us move on. I believe you have some six-word advice tips. Oh, to yeah, I love this. So, um, again, this is a NaNoWriMo sort of based thing, but in, in honour of this year's NaNoWriMo, there's a, a website called Six Words, and they're holding a contest on Twitter, um, which was running through to November the to the November the sixth. They held mm. this contest, and it was asking writers to offer their best writing advice in six words using the hashtag Nano Six, mm. and it's been fantastic. But Writers Digest, which is a big uh, again another favourite uh, big website of mine for writers, um, has done a little list of. Um, 17 of their favourites. So these are just, it's writing advice in six words. So, you know, it's things like, don't wait for inspiration, just write. Write like a hurricane, edit later. Um, Trust your instincts, they're usually right. 
excuses once made will take control. Like mm. there's a lot of them and they're, they're very good. Like there's a lot of stuff that, you know, because sometimes all you need is the six words to kind of remember and move on. I particularly like kill self-doubt, hide the body. That's awesome. <laughs> Which is great. Um, everyone sees themselves as a hero. It's actually, yeah, that oh, is wow. six words. Um, and it's, that's a really important one to remember because I remembered I needed that piece of information for book three of my um, Mapmaker Chronicle series because you have to remember that even the villain sees themselves as the hero in their own story. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. working, every single one of your characters has their own story and everyone's a hero. Like I'm the hero of my story. Clearly Darren is the hero of your story, <laughs> <Yeah>. but nonetheless... <laughs> So I was thinking about what would my advice be in six words for writers, but mine's actually only four and it's the best piece of advice that I've ever been given. I got it at a romance writers conference. It was on a t-shirt. What is it? Okay. Finish the damn book. (laughs) That's it. I love it. Finish the damn book. So there you go. I'm down to four. Have you got six words for us, Valerie? Um, Darren? I I don't, but interestingly, and of course people, um, this is, it's called Six Words really because I think it was inspired by the story that Hemingway, Hemingway wrote, yes. um, was challenged once in a bar that he, I bet you can't write, tell a story in six words. And he said, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And um, it's interesting because Again, I happened to be at this conference in Austin, Texas, where the six words people were running a were running a session, and people were invited to stand up and tell their six word story, and various people got up and told their six word story, and just as a point of trivia, this this woman got up and she went, um, "He hit, I left, no regrets," mm. and the whole room just went, <gasps> and um, and they ended the session on that. <laughs> But yeah, very powerful. You can tell a very powerful story in six words. So I didn't have a six-word story, but I thought I'd tell you that one. You've got nothing for me, have you? Yeah. <laughs> and you've got no six-word writing advice either, have you? <laughs> no. I see. I see what you did there. I yeah. saw you trying to get out of it. Yeah, that's I did. okay. We'll move, how about we'll move on? There you yeah, go. Yeah, that's three words. Yes. All right, we'll move on to something that is four words: prick with a fork. Ooh. Now, you <laughs> listeners may remember our interview with Larissa Dubecki recently, and yes. so our giveaway this week is her book, Prick with a Fork. So uh, this is a competition. All you need to do is go to writerscenter.com.au/win, and entries close sixteenth November for your chance to win Prick with a Fork by Larissa DeBecky. If you happen to be listening to this podcast, you know, like Michael J. Fox, Into the Future, don't worry, there'll be another competition at that URL. So go to it anyway. All right. So let um, us now, move on. I just want to talk um, – I'm just going to segue you back to NaNoWriMo yes. again okay. because clearly that's all I can think about at the moment. Um, <laughs> the readingroom.com is a terrific uh, website for lovers of books, all mm. manner of books and writing and things like that. They have, you know, it's it's a um, absolute veritable treasure trove of articles and things about books and um, writing and inspirational quotes and all those things we love. But mm. they have a they have a post up at the moment uh, which is called 10 Novels Written in About a Month. And wow. I think it's worth having a look at because, it, um, as it says, it might surprise you how quickly some of these classics were written. Yeah. And it goes through a list of 10 books um, such as A Clockwork Orange by mm. Anthony Burgess, yes. which he wrote in three weeks no for the money as one does. Mm. Um, and I remember uh, uh, As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, I remembered, mm. I, as soon as I saw the list, I thought it's going to be on there because I remember very, very clearly that it was written in less than six weeks. Yes. And I remember that because I had to study it mm. at school and I always felt it read like it was written in six <laughs> weeks, but apparently not. It wasn't one of my favourites, it has mm. to be said. Um, but, you know, Casino Royale, the first uh, Bond novel, yes. took about two months to write. And then by the time he was sort of like writing more Bond novels, they were taking around about six weeks. Wow. But I think my favourite yes. is A Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle, which, of course, is the first novel to feature the lovely and fabulous Sherlock Holmes, and it mm. took Arthur Conan Doyle just three weeks to write. Oh, my goodness. Which 
I don't think that one reads like it was written in three weeks. Yeah, I think right. it's, a, you know, being the sort of uh, complicated piece of fiction that it is, I, I was quite surprised by that one. So it's worth having a look at that. And I can't wait to tell my son, Mr. Mm-hmm. Eleven, mm-hmm. they're reading The Boy in the Striped Pajamas at oh, school yes. at the moment. And he's um, by John Boyne. And uh, he's very much enjoying it. But it was written in two and a half days. That's just weird. That's what I think. It was obviously maybe a first draft, but he, the author Boyne said he was so fervently engrossed in the story he was writing that he couldn't stop. Wow. Days. So, yeah, you don't need NaNoWriMo. It's just NaNoWriMo two and a half days. Well, that's clearly right. And I have to say that I read the Australian Writers' Centre newsletter this morning and I thought you had a very, very good point to make. I very much enjoyed the newsletter this week. Um, I very, I really liked the point that you made about the fact that everybody spends 11 months talking about writing and one <laughs> month writing. Yes. Imagine what we could all achieve if we actually just wrote every month. And yes. I think that that's a really, really good point to make and I, I'm glad you made it, Valerie. Okay. okay. So take heart, everyone. You can, you can easily write a novel in a month if you put your mind to it, as evidenced by all of the authors that Alison has just mentioned. And in fact, you can write a novel in two and a half days. Probably that's a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. Stick mm. with the month and we look forward to hearing how you go at the end Excellent. of NaNoWriMo if, you've take, if you're taking part. But let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Now, I thought this was really interesting. This is A.G. Riddle. and His name is actually Jerry, Jerry <laughs> but he Jerry. used um, uh, a pseudonym, A.G. Riddle, for his um, novels. He's written four novels now, and the latest one is called Departure, and it's being published by HarperCollins and being made into a major motion picture. His first book is also being made into a Hollywood movie. But the interesting part of A.G. Riddle's story or Jerry's story is that he started off self-publishing. So he had three books in his first series and he self-published them. And he said that he never thought of, you know, never thought of sending it to a traditional publisher because he had a background in internet startups. So he just felt comfortable online and he he just he just always thought he was going to self-publish and he felt more comfortable putting the novel on the internet just to see what readers thought. And he thought, you know, if it went well, then he'd continue full time. If not, he would just, it would just become a hobby and he'd, you know, do something else. Uh, But obviously they've taken off with two of his books being made into Hollywood movies. So let's have a chat to A.G. Riddle. Thanks for joining us today, Jerry. Oh, thanks for having me. Very exciting. Now, you're an author, but first, I understand you spent 10 years starting internet companies before trying fiction. Before we start talking about your writing and your books, can you just give us a potted history of what you did before you became a writer? Sure. I, um, I went to college in the fall of 1998, and, you know, here in America and around the world, the internet was... Uh, really exploding, and it was um, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I started an internet company in college, and um, I did that, yeah, for 10 years. A childhood friend and I um, were sort of what's called serial entrepreneurs. We would start one company after another, and six of them really kind of bit the dust pretty quickly. They went nowhere, and um, a few did okay, and um, we really had a wonderful time at it it was um i think it was the right career for me and because you know i I am a very creative person and i grew up uh, my dad owned a sign company so i grew up you know in a small family-owned business and um uh, it's really what i loved i knew i wanted to run a company you know from a very early age and um you know, I got to the end of that after 10 years. I mean, the, the startup cycle is pretty brutal. I mean, it's very stressful. It's long hours. And um, I, you know, I was at a kind of a stopping point and I tried to really reflect and try to figure out what I wanted to do with the next 10, 20 years. And, and that kind of led me to writing. And so what made you reflect? At what kind of point did you reach that made you think, I really need to think about my life now? Well, I, um, you know, I was really tired, you know, I was ready for, 
to take a break, but I, um, you know, growing up in the household that I did, you know, my parents instilled in all of us that, you know, um, hard work and being proud of what you create is, is a, a virtue and a, and a value. And that, that remains one of my core values. I mean, I, when I wake up every day, I, I'll, I'm happiest when I'm working on something that, that I think matters. And um, so I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to like, you know, go off in the jungle for six months. It just wasn't really who I was. I, I was looking for a second career. And um, I mean, the internet stuff, I, I think the other thing, you know, that I had come to is that I've been relatively successful, but I wasn't, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, or the Google guys, you know, I hadn't really found what I was meant to do in life, or at least I felt like that. So I, I really wanted to take a, a pause in my life to say, well, you know, what am I really good at? What are my limitations? And, and you know, what's the next opportunity for me? And with startups, I mean, the thing that I really loved was the creative process. So early on when we had an idea for a company and we would sit in a room, we would say, you know, what if, what if we did this or does this make sense? And, and then the process of creating that product was was magic for me. And that's what I really loved. And the things that always inevitably came after that, running the company, scaling up, hiring people, um, those were things that I was okay at, but I wasn't really that great. I mean, there's so many people that were a lot better than me at it. So, you know, I, I really tried to think about, well, those are things that I'm not great at, but I think I'm pretty good at the creative process. And I, and I love creating things and spending my time being creative. You know, my dad's sign company was like that. We we did signs for, you know, big chains. I'm sure you have them over there, you know, um, restaurant groups and, um, you know, gas stations. We also did a lot of boutique restaurants and things like that and that were much more artistic. And I mean, I, I just love that process. A, a customer would walk in with an idea and they would say, you know, this is my vision for my business. This is kind of what I want it to look like. And you're sketching something on Monday and then, you know, by Friday it's in drafting and you have a computer rendering. And then two weeks later it's in the plant being welded together and painted. And then it's on a truck and you're a hundred feet off the interstate, you know, putting this thing up. And that was magic for me. And, and, to some extent, the internet startups was like that. You'd, you'd have an idea and then, you know, thousands of people were using this thing a month later. And so that led me to writing because I I thought, well, you know, there's something I can do that, that is more purely creative. And, you know, my career had been very stressful. So I, you know, reading was, had been something that was a source of joy and, um, and something that was very positive in my life. And so, so I thought, oh, you know, that could be something. So until that point, had you done much writing? I had not. I, um, I had not written anything more extensive than, say, an email. But, um, <laughs> okay. But I don't love reading. So you've now written, let's just fast forward a bit to present day. You've now written your fourth book, Departure. So for readers who haven't read it yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Yeah. Departure is about a flight that takes off in the present day and crash lands mysteriously. And the survivors have to figure out where they are and what happened to them. And they quickly learn that the world they've crashed in is very different than the one they left and that they've been brought to this place for a reason and some of the people seem to have clues and some people seem to know what's going on so it's it's very much a survival story that's a mystery and it's you know it's um it's a lot like the tv show lost and that you know you've got this group of strangers that are all trying to figure each other out and, and i think there's some very interesting kind of colorful characters in the cast and um i think it's a lot of fun that that's really what i meant to be so what made you Come up, how did you come up with this idea? What made you want to write this book? Well, I, you know, my first, so I have written four books. My first three were a trilogy um, and they were techno thrillers that were very research and science heavy. And I've been researching and I'm still working on a new trilogy. And um, I just had this idea. I was like, you know, and this, this could get into a few spoilers for your audience out there. You may want to fast forward it you know, 30 seconds or a minute, but I had this idea for a plane that, um, 
takes off in 2015 and crash lands in the future. And I, I just couldn't get out of my head. And I thought, well, you know, why would, uh, you know, why would a flight crash land in the future? And, and I thought, well, you know, maybe the future needs these people for some reason. And it got me really pondering. And, you know, one of the central themes of the book is the technology that we're creating and how it's impacting our world. And, um, you know, are we on the precipice of something here now in 2015? And, you know, this sort of scenario and this idea that you can only save the future by going back and, you know, retrieving something from the past. So that, that was kind of the seed for me. And I just thought, well, you know, that's that's really interesting and, and could go in a lot of directions. Mm. So you mentioned that uh, you previously did write a trilogy. The first was The Atlantis Gene, then The Atlantis Plague and The Atlantis World, which have sold millions in the US alone. I believe that they've also been translated into 18 languages and uh, the first book is in development at CBS Films to be made into a movie. That's pretty huge. When you first no, – and you hadn't written anything before beyond an email. And how did you get started with the Atlantis gene? Paint me a picture of, you know, I've never written anything be- before beyond an email. I might now start writing this best-selling <laughs> trilogy, <laughs> you know. Paint me that picture. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture. I'm just going to warn you. Um, it's uh, It was pretty agonizing, pretty brutal uh, beginning. I mean, the beginning sort of like departure with a plane crash. I mean, that, that's what how I felt my uh, writing, my early writing shaped up. I, you know, I, I had the advantage in that I was um, pretty financially secure and I could just focus on writing. I mean, I have a lot of respect for people who right after work and before work and on the weekend, you know, while maintaining a life and a family and all that, just, it, it is, uh, incredible. I found it incredibly hard to get started. I think, I think that, you know, when, when you're in your twenties and when you're younger, it gets a little, it's, it's a lot easier to start over. I mean, I had a successful career and was sort of used to going to work and succeeding at something on some level every day. Right. And so, you know, for that two and a half year period, you don't get a lot of feedback and you, you're just feeling around in the dark, or at least, you know, if you're not going to university or college to learn about it. And I was essentially self-taught, you know, I bought a lot of books on writing um, and I really analyzed, you know, what do I really like in the novels that are my favorites? And, and my process for, for that first novel was that I would, you know, I had my story and then I would write and, I was incredibly discouraged because I thought, well, you know, this is the worst thing that has ever been written. I was, you know, I, I hated my output. And so I would throw it out and I would give up for about six hours. And then I would start back again because I was so determined. I told my, um, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, I said, you know, I think I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> and she just looked at me like I was crazy. She was like, well, I mean, you know, you <laughs> do whatever you want. And I didn't show her anything for, two years and she had to just be so worried and uh, I think she was pretty relieved when I finally you know showed her what I'd been working on and and things you know obviously turned out pretty well but um, yeah it's not that's not how I would probably recommend others uh, start their career but that was for me it was you know just sort of working alone for a very long time learning about writing and testing out what I've learned and just trying to get better. So you did this for two and a half years What and it's your first book. What kept you going, especially when you had not written before and you were writing, as you say, in isolation? Did you have support? Did you have a cheer squad? Did you? What kept you going for two and a half years to write an entire novel, you know, when you hadn't sort of even been in the industry before? I think it's just, I think it was um, a certain mindset from my internet startup days. I mean, the the process in that world is that you create the best product you can. You come out with your alpha or your beta version and you learn from it. And it's an iterative process in which you, to a certain extent, you, you get used to failure and you get used to taking feedback. And trying to get better and iterating. And that's really what I was doing. Um, 
except, you know, I would say in, in my past life, the you got a lot more clues on how to get better. And, and with writing, I was just like, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. And I didn't know early on. I, I really I wasn't sure what I was doing in a lot of respects. I mean, I still am not. But the I think it was, you know, just a combination of determination and having this mindset that I'm going to do this. I'm going to get better. I mean, I think had my work just been so mediocre early, I may have just kind of went with it. But I thought it was so bad and I, I desperately wanted to get better. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so I think it is, you know, it's it's that. I think it comes back to, to a certain extent, what's inside you. You know, I, I have a strong work ethic and I, I enjoy working and I enjoy creating things. And that, that's really what kind of drove me on. So tell us about your break. What, at what point did you think I'm going to send this to a publisher or an agent or, or whatever? The first book. Right. The first book. I mean, so for me, when I finished the first book, I let my wife read it. I let my mom read it. And I mean, they thought it was the most wonderful thing ever. And I thought, well, you know, this is not exactly an impartial audience here. Uh, and I really, I wanted to know, um, I wanted to know what readers thought. I mean, I, I was really looking for a second career. So I thought if this takes off, I'm going to keep doing it. And if it doesn't, you know, I'll move on and, and maybe find something else. And for me, you know, I'd always, I'd always read books in print, but in, you know, for a few years I'd been reading on my iPhone, the Kindle app, because they had a lot of Star Trek and science fiction novels that I really enjoyed that were either out of print or obscure or, or hard to get your hands on. It was more convenient, you know, just after work and, and being from an internet startup background, I mean, releasing something online directly to consumers is something I can kind of get my head around. I knew absolutely nothing about the publishing industry. I didn't even know the words query letter or what that process was. I mean, that, that process of after two and a half years, you know, sending this thing off and waiting to hear what a very small group of people thought um, to me, didn't make a ton of sense. I mean, I, in the internet world, you create the best product you can, you put it out there and you listen to the market and you figure it out. I mean, that, that is what makes the difference between success and failure. And so that's really what I was determined to do. My mom edited the book. I did the cover myself and I uploaded it to Amazon in March of 2013. And, um, I mean, the book almost instantly found an audience. I mean, it, the first month it sold 6,000 copies, it sold 12,000 the second month, wow. and then it went to 24, 28, and it was selling more than 30,000 copies a month for, uh, I mean, after that. And then the second book came out in December, and together they sold over 100,000 copies. So it was just pretty wild. And so at that point, agents started contacting me and, um, and I signed up and the movie studios were contacting me as well. So um, that I've been very reactive, I would say, on the on the business side of things. And I, mm. I've really, you know, in, in the Internet world, we product is everything, you know, and, and you have to get distribution and you've got to get in front of the audience. But um, if you can make something that's really remarkable, it, it's really the wind at your sails and and. Um, and that's what I was really keen to do. And so did you, from day one, know it was going to be a trilogy? Did you already plan out the second two books? I knew it was going to be a series. I, I didn't really have enough experience to know how many books it would be. I mean, a trilogy was ideal for me. But, yeah, I'd written the first book and I was working on the second one when the, the first came out. Mm. And so with um, – the huge success or the you, you got very good traction very early on for the first book and then the second book. Did you, was it just the market discovering it and word of mouth? Did you do any promotion for it at all? No, I mean, the, the only thing we did, so I, you know, my wife sent it to her Facebook friends. And this is like a hundred people. <laughs> and she hounded these people to read the novel. And she, she told me, I'm going to lose friends over this. You know, these, these people are, you know, they're busy and not everybody's into sci-fi thrillers. And I was just like, Oh man. And yeah. my, you know, AG Riddle is a pen name. And I wrote under a pen name. Um, 
for, for my own sanity, but also because, you know, I'd had a successful business career and, you know, in some ways wanted to start over, wanted to separate the two. Mm. I hadn't told any of my friends what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I didn't launch with a big splash. I, I priced the book well. I, I initially priced it at two ninety nine, and then I did some promotions by reducing it to $0.99. Cent, but there was no real... I can't really point to anything that was the blockbuster. You know, this really helped me break mm. out. Well, that's astounding that the film people, that is going to be turned into a movie. Now, with Departure, which is published through HarperCollins, I understand that 20th Century Fox is developing this novel into a feature film. Do you write with that sort of cinematic endpoint in mind, kind of thinking, okay, if this was a movie, this is how it would play out? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit the way my mind works. I mean, I I think kind of cinematically, and I love novels that are that have this cinematic quality in which um, put the reader there and they feel like they're experiencing it. It's immersive, and um, I like a novel with a fast pace. And you know, I think you can't sacrifice character, but. But I think if you work hard enough at it, you can get a good balance of both. That's something I'm still working on, but I, it's something that's important to me. And I um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that has really helped me with the movie stuff, but um, I've certainly been very lucky in that respect. Everything I've written has been is in development. That's great. So did you, um, uh, with Departure, why did you make the decision to go with a traditional publisher as opposed to, for example, what you did with the Atlantis gene? Well, actually, uh, self-published departure initially. Um, mm-hmm. I put it on Amazon. The, the novel did very well early. It In the first four months, I think it sold 250,000 copies. Wow. And at that point, my – so I have two agents. I have an agent in Asia, uh, Grey Tan, and Danny Bear represents me in Europe. And Danny had read it and thought thought the novel was very cinematic and thought it was very good and, and wanted to know if I would let his Hollywood counterpart read it. I didn't. I thought, you know, that's fine. Didn't think anything of it. But yeah, a week later, we got an offer, a preempt from 20th Century Fox, and it was a really good offer. And and so we sold them the movie rights. And before they announced it, they told Harper Collins because that's, you know, they're the same company, I yeah. guess, News Corp. Or, um, and then so Harper Collins made the offer uh, on publishing it into bookstores. Great. So when you are writing, because your books, you, you, you know, you've, you've written four books now, when you're actually in the writing process, can you tell us what your typical day is like? Is, like whether you have a routine that you need to stick to, some authors are real sticklers for routine, others write in snatched time. What's your process? So my routine kind of varies with where I am in the, the writing process in the novel. I'm a an outliner I, I do because my novels are, are fairly intricate. I have to do a lot of research up front. Then I write an outline and then I go through a phase where I'm doing, you know, the first draft or editing or whatever it might be. But generally, you know, first thing in the morning is when I'm the most productive. I, you know, I work, you know, so for me, there's only so many in terms of, I feel like mental quality time, so many hours in the day. And so I'll, as, as long as I'm still going strong and I feel like the output is, is really good, um, I'll write. And I usually get, I don't know, five hours of that. And then after that, it's I don't I don't feel like it's as strong. And, and so I'll just stop writing and then, you know, return emails or, or do the myriad of other things that apparently you have to do as a writer. <laughs> and, but, yeah, I, you know, and sometimes I'll work at night if I get a second win. And so your, as you say, your novels are quite intricate and there's a lot of uh, detail in a variety of levels. What kind of research do you, did you have to do for departure, say? Did you have to, is it the kind that you could really just make it all up, really, because it was the world that you were creating? Or did you have to do research where you had to go to the library or, or research certain industries or aspects of, of what you were writing about? 
Well, a lot of, so Departure is an interesting novel in that, you know, I wanted the plane crash to be very realistic. So I did a lot of research on, you know, the size of planes and, and how, you know, what happens in a, in a crash and what are all these technical terms and, you know, what's in the belly of the plane and how does all that work? And, mm-hmm. and I mean, you can, detail can work against you, you know, if there's too much in there, but um, I had to do a lot of research on planes. And then this is a novel that's about time travel. And I wanted, you know, time travel novels, I think, are a genre that I absolutely love. But there are a lot of readers that that are unable to suspend disbelief because they're like, you know, time travel doesn't exist. And I wanted to, <laughs> and, you know, we'll see. But the um, I wanted that science to be real enough for people to kind of get on board and go along with it when, when that revelation happens. But the most research for departure was really about locations. You know, this is a, mm. there's some spoilers coming here. So don't spoil um, it. Don't spoil it. Okay. Spoil it. <laughs> yeah. I, I will only say that um, my wife and I spent four months traveling around the world and we, we did visit some of the locations. Awesome. Which was really cool. <laughs> What's next for you? What are you working on now? Yeah, I'm working on a new trilogy. Um, it'll be very much a sci-fi thriller that's set, you know, the present day um, Earth that I'm very excited about, and I have still have a lot of work to do, but um, uh, we'll see. You said that when you, that writing was hard in your first book because you hadn't done it before, and that it wasn't pretty. What did you do to – and you said you wanted to just keep on iterating like you did with your internet companies, improving. What did you do to help you improve? What I would do is I would write and then I would try to sit back and analyze, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of what I've written? You know, is, is the dialogue strong? Are the characters good? Is the, you know, is the pace right? And then I would just try to find books that were – you know, early in my kind of education, I, I read generalized books on, you know, whether it was plotting or writing in general. Um, you know, Stephen King has a book that's kind of a memoir. And, and so I, I read a lot of general stuff like that. And then as I got more into writing and more into figuring out what my specific weaknesses were, I started reading more specific books. But it was a lot about reading books um, for me books about writing exactly Mm, great okay and finally what's your advice to aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day well the most important thing I think is to figure out what you want from writing I think it's very much like anything else in life you know you have to define success if you're ever going to find it you know whether you're in a romantic relationship or in a job um, or starting out as a career as a writer, you've got to figure out, you know, what's important to you and what you really want out of writing. Is it winning awards? Is it paying your mortgage? Is it writing the story that you really want to write? Is it, you know, seeing your name on the bestseller list? Because um, the things that are of value to you and that you aspire to should drive all of your tactics and decisions. So um, I think, knowing what you want helps you in so many ways and, and keeps you sane. I mean, this is, this is a a very bizarre career in which sometimes it feels like there's no justice and things don't make sense. And sometimes they really don't. But if you know what you want and you feel like you're doing everything you can every day to get there, um, I think you can be proud of what you're doing. Great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. So there you go, Jerry. What a fantastic story. Yeah, you know, just so, um, uh, what's the word? I mean, it's incredible, really. <laughs> I, I find it interesting too, though. Like I, the, you know, you were talking about before the interview, you were talking about the fact that, you know, he had decided that, you know, he would do this thing mm. and he would put it on the internet and if it was successful, then he would write full time and if it wasn't, then he would just continue writing as a hobby. Mm. It's such a 
business-like approach to writing. And I think it kind of goes to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with regards to this whole myth of the writing life. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's in actual fact, writing has to be a love. I, I, I fervently believe that if you are going to, to, to do it, you have to love it, you have to want to do it for the sake of it, mm. which he obviously does in the sense that if it didn't work out as his actual day job, he would it would still be a hobby for him yeah. and he would pursue a different career. But the fact that he has taken such a business-like approach to it is so anathema to this whole writer in a garret starving, yeah. you know, drinking wine, not getting out of bed thing, which I, you know, I, 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 like, the, I like the approach. Yeah, good. Yeah, great story. And I love mm. the fact that it's, it's become so successful, sold millions of copies uh, thanks to the power of the internet. You know, he understands how to use social media. He understands how to uh, promote his books. So good on him. Go, Jerry. Yeah, and to promote his books to the point where two of them, two out of four are being made into movies. Amazing. Anyway, let's move on to our app pick for the week. I thought that this was an interesting one. We have mentioned it before, but it has um, updated itself and, um, you know, enhanced its features and it kind of is similar to the app that we mentioned last week. Now, you might re- might remember that last week's app was an app where it only showed the letter you are typing, the, the last mm. letter that you type so that you have no choice but to just yeah. keep on typing until you've reached your desired time limit. Well, this is kind of similar and some people love it. It's called Write or Die and as I mentioned, we've mentioned it before in the podcast but uh, with the updated version, it's um, – People might like to check it out. Now, if you don't know Write or Die, it is an app where you have to keep on writing and if you leave too long of a pause so that, you know, you're distracted or whatever, it will start deleting your words. So, you know, you just have to. You have no choice but to make sure those fingers are on that keyboard and you just keep typing away. So, Write or Die. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just... Not your I, kind of thing, I know. I don't think so. I mean, I, I you know, I sort of just basically, I, it's in, it's been an interesting thing watching in my NaNoWriMo spreadsheet, uh, spreadsheet support group, as if I would ever have a spreadsheet, <laughs> in my NaNoWriMo support group, um, the different approaches that people take to, you know, getting those words down. But I, I just have, I have always, I guess it's just, you know, lots and lots of practice. I just set aside the hour, I write, mm. I stop, I go and you know, do something else. And I think that, yeah, I just, I, the, the notion that, that my words would start deleting if I yes. wasn't sort of, you know, actively typing just makes me feel slightly ill. Yes. Anyway, yeah. Some people do like the carrot or stick approach though. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to our working writer's tip, which is should you write footnotes in your articles? And I'm referring to your feature articles that you would submit to a magazine or online publication or newspaper. Okay. So, so I'm going to ask you this, Valerie, because yes. you always ask me these questions. <laughs> so this time I'm going to turn this around. Okay. Darren, <laughs> should you write footnotes in your articles? The short answer is no. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people are so used to doing that at university or in corporate documents where you can put footnotes in your Word document. And no, don't do it. Bec- and there's nothing more frustrating to an editor who then has to deal with footnotes. If you ne- are referencing something in your article, like you're saying that the, you, your footnote is that you got that particular statistic from the Journal of Applied Psychology, Volume 3, <laughs> January <laughs> 2013, page 27. Of course, you're not going to, you know, include all of that information in the body of the article, but you need to be saying in the body of the article, according to a recent edition of the Journal of Applied Psychology, 70% of women do X, Y, Z. And so you need to incorporate the reference into the actual article. Of course, you don't say volume three, page 27. What you need to do, though, is have those details on file in your own you know, records in case the editor comes back to you to say exactly which journal is this from, but you don't need to put that level of detail in the actual article. It's very, very frustrating to an editor because not only do they then have to get 
the reference out of the footnote and put it mm-hmm. into the article. When they are editing um, and when they pull that document into a something like InDesign or uh, Quark or whatever it is, if anyone still uses Quark. Um, <laughs> or, or, I was going to say, oh, I've just been transported back yeah. to the 90s. Well, if, whatever they're pulling that into to, in order to, to design the um, design the page, it doesn't pull in the footnotes anyway. So, or no. if it pulls it in, it pulls them in in a terribly, you know, wrongly formatted way. So don't annoy your editor by putting any footnotes whatsoever if you're submitting an article to uh, for an uh, an art uh, for a magazine or a newspaper or an online publication. No. What's your take on it? Um, exactly the same. I would say that you want to be able to get as much precise information into the story as you can. So, you know, recent article in Psychology Today or whatever is is enough for some things, but sometimes you actually need to say a 2015 University of Sydney study yes. or something like that. They want to know, you can't just say a 2000, you know, a university study. It's got to be mm. um, as detailed as you can in, and, and you know, you were always keeping one eye on your word count. And, you know, you putting in a 20-word description of a study is not a way to bump up your word count (laughs) and get you to 1,000 words with as little effort as possible. And I have seen that as well as an editor. So you want to think of how can I convey this information, as much information as I can in as fewer words as I can um, and put those into the – put that into the body of the story. I have a question back to you based on what you just said then, and I think people will find this helpful. You mentioned you can't say, oh, a university study said that 70% of women, whatever. Mm-hmm. Some people submit that and they hyperlink the uh, a, a university study said. They, mm-hmm. they hyperlink those words to the original study or yep. a press release on the study. Your thoughts, please, on hyperlinking when you submit stuff. Well, you have to hire. The fact of the matter is that I've just recently done a whole stuff, a whole lot of uh, stories online for for a website, and they want the hyperlink. Sure. But in those instances, you do the hyperlink. Mm-hmm. Don't hyperlink in the story if you're submitting to a print publication, mm. because that's that's a you're providing you. It's a cheating, and b <laughs> you're making a whole lot of work for the sub editor who has to go through your hyperlink and put the information into the story. You've got to remember that when the reader picks up the magazine, there's no hyperlink. Yes. They can't hyperlink. They need the information in front of them in as precise as information as possible. They can go and search it up themselves if they want further, but you need to be able to give them enough information to be able to do that. But no hyperlink. But no. that doesn't mean that if you are supplying it to an online publication that you are that you should hyperlink. You should go to that online publication and see whether they hyperlink to external sites. Oh, yes, definitely. Sorry, yes. Yeah. I was asked to hyperlink, so therefore I hyperlinked. Yeah. But I also, I also made sure I didn't to say a university study. I said a 2015 University of Sydney study, mm. blah, blah, and hyperlinked that. Yeah. So that if you didn't want to necessarily follow up the information, you still knew where that information had come from. Yeah, absolutely. So if you if you love hyperlinking, because some people are really into hyperlinking, mm. um, go for it, except make sure that your copy is still readable if the hyperlinks fall off. Mm. Or, or, you know, it has enough references if your hyperlinks fall off. So... There you go. That's our working writer's tip for this week. So until we chat again, Al, what are you going to be up to? Uh, right. What am I going to be up to? That's a very good question. I am, well, I'm writing things, you know. I've got yes. manuscripts to finish and stuff to do, NaNoWriMo to get through, build your author platform to put the final tweaks to, yes. um, being, of course, the course that I'm doing for the Australian Writers' Centre. Um, yeah, stuff like that. That's busy, busy. Writing stuff, yes. As yes. And you, Valerie? Uh, I have got – Something glamorous. Please tell me you uh, are. Not that glamorous. I'll be – I've got a couple of major deadlines of um, some print articles that I'm submitting to a glossy mag. So I've really got to get my A into G on them um, because uh, there, there's lots of interviews involved. Um, but I just wanted to give a reminder to anybody who is, you know, nearing the end of your manuscript or participating in NaNoWriMo, some Something to 
seriously have a look at is our on-demand course, Pitch Your Novel, How to Pitch to Agents and Publishers. Mm. Uh, you know, how to with pitch successfully. With the fabulous Natasha Lester. Yes, yes, with mm. Natasha Lester. And it's a great video course and she goes through the 10 steps you need to take in order to pitch successfully to agents and publishers. So if you want to check that out, have a look at writerscentercomau slash pitch. Uh, it's it's really good and it's it's very very popular. So check it out. But uh, until next time, where do we find you online? Uh, you will find me at alisontait.com, A L L I S O N T A I T. You will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A L T A I T, confessing all manner of things. I confessed <laughs> yesterday, for example, that I had made myself sick eating clinkers. Oh yeah, and- I hate clinkers. God, so many people do. I hate them. Yeah, I love them. Like I don't know. Just thinking about it, you're either a fan or you're not. Like someone described them as fossilized. Oh, they're gross. Fossilized Cadbury snack, Mm -hmm. and I had to laugh because I actually really like Cadbury snack as well. Which everyone in the discussion. (laughs) I know everyone in the discussion decided that I was clearly a very cheap date, which is quite true. Um, but anyway, I do talk about more interesting things than that as well. Uh, but you will also find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. I can't believe you hate clinkers. Don't you love the surprise of discovering nah. what's inside? No. Nah. My latest thing is the Banoffee Pie from Char Grilled Charlie's. Uh, I cannot do I bananas, I don't do bananas <laughs> okay. on any level. I cannot do them in Banoffee. I can't do them anywhere. Okay. It's just, oh, no, I don't do bananas. Well, you'll find me on Twitter <laughs> at Valerie Koo. You'll find me and my cats on Instagram at Valerie Koo. You'll find me on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo. You'll find me and uh, connect. Oh, rub it in. <laughs> rub it in, Darren. Yeah, You're Darren. Everywhere as Valerie Koo. <laughs> but if you would like the show notes to this episode, check out writercenter.com.au slash podcast. So until we chat again next week, we'll have a good week. Well, okay, bye. This week's giveaway is Prick with a Fork, a memoir by Larissa DeBecky. Now one of Australia's most respected food critics, Larissa writes an honest and funny account of her 10 years as a waitress. Entries for this competition close Monday, 16 November 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there will be a new book giveaway at writerscentercomau slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentercomau slash podcast.